Now, if you remember from the beginning of this um, sutta, Potapada, who is asking all these questions of the Buddha and wants to hear about these things, is um, belongs to a different uh, sect, so to say. He's not a, a follower of the Buddha, uh, of the Buddha. And in fact, he was sitting with his wanderers and asking them to be quiet because the Buddha would only like to be there if they were quiet. So um, he has totally different views, and they are now going to come out, these different views. He's saying to the Buddha, Lord, do you teach that the summit of perception is just one, or that it is many? And then the Buddha says, I teach it as both one and many. And then Potapada naturally says, how is it one and how is it many? I mean, anybody would say that. So, now the Buddha answers, according as he attains successively to the cessation of each perception, so I teach the summit of that perception. Thus, I teach both one summit of perception and also I teach many. So, it's a bit, the wording is a bit difficult, isn't it? But what he's saying is that he is teaching the cessation of each of the jhanas, each state of consciousness, in order to get to the next one. So obviously he's teaching the uh, summit that one can reach at that time and then go to the, the further ones. So he's teaching actually eight summits of perception, but also only one because the eighth one or the seventh one, this one only had seven, is the, the last one. So he's actually making sort of a, a play out of it. It's very, it's, he teaches all of them, but also that there's one that you only can have at one time. So if you have the first jhana and you have the, the state of consciousness for the first jhana, so obviously that is that state of consciousness which you're being taught at that time. Then if you leave that because he says now you leave that go to the next one then you have already two but again you've only got the one that you're at clear okay now now comes an interesting one because this is something that concerns us also lord does perception arise before knowledge or knowledge arise before perception or do both arise simultaneously now, I just want to remind you that this here perception is meant as a state of consciousness. Perception arises first, Potapada, then knowledge. And from the arising of perception comes the arising of knowledge. And one knows, thus conditioned, knowledge arises. Now, what he's talking about is exactly that what I call the understood experience. First, we have the experience, which is our perception or our state of consciousness. Let's just say it's the first jhana, or the second, or the fifth, or whatever. And we have that state of consciousness. We've got to first have it. But then, after having had it, then comes the knowledge, the understanding of what it is. So, of course, the perception comes first, the state of consciousness comes first. 
very simply said, if we sit in meditation and we've got a pain in the knee from the sitting posture, we've got to have the feeling first before we have the knowledge that our knee is hurting. So we have the perception in this case, the perception of this unpleasant feeling first, and then we have the understanding what it is, the hurting knee. And the same goes, of course, for all states of consciousness. So first, the experience. But then must come the understanding. Otherwise, the experience doesn't have any impact on one's psyche. It doesn't have any training in it. Because meditation is the science of mind. And science has to be repeatable and must be possible to do by everyone. Anything that's scientific, you have to be able to repeat it. And you have to be able, anyone has to be able to do it on a theoretical basis. Not everybody wants to do it, but it has to be done. It has to be possible. So, the same applies for meditation. And we're only able to repeat and we're only able to do it in a proper manner if we've understood what we're doing. So the knowledge, the understanding, comes after the experience. And then we also know, the Buddha says, that knowledge has a condition. The condition is the experience. The perception is that the state of consciousness. Now, in this way, you can see, he says to this Potapada, how perception arises first and then knowledge, and that from the arising of perception comes the arising of knowledge. He's just repeating the same thing now. He says, from the arising of the perception comes the arising of knowledge. Now, if we have never had, and this is an important aspect of the practice, if we've never had the state of consciousness of infinity of space, just as an example, right? Then it is impossible for us to have that inner understanding and inner knowledge of knowing that there is infinity of space and that within that there is nobody to be found. So, it has a condition, our knowledge. It has to have that condition. If it is only taught, read, or heard, it's only information. And from information, it still has to come the personal experience, which is the perception of it. Now, of course, this Potapada is uh, not satisfied very easily with anything he hears, so he keeps on asking questions. And this is how the whole discourse comes about. He asks question after question. So, um, you see, it's quite good to ask questions, actually. <laughs> Get a discourse that way. <laughs> now he says, Lord, is perception a person's self? That's a very good question, isn't it? Because people do think that way. Is, a, is perception a person's self? 
or is perception one thing and self another? That's surely going to be interesting what the Buddha has to say about that, huh? Well, Potapada, do you postulate a self? Lord, I postulate a gross self, material, composed of the four elements and feeding on solid food. Now, you must remember that this Potapada is a practitioner. He's a spiritual practitioner. He's not just a, a guy on the street who's never thought about such things. He has thought about it and uh, has made up his own uh, views on it. So he says there is a gross self, material composed of the four elements, which you already have heard about, and it feeds on solid food. Okay. Now the Buddha says, but with such a gross self, Potapada, perception would be one thing and the self another. You can see that in this way. Given such a gross self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others pass away. In this way, you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. So the Buddha doesn't go into great detail on it because he figures, well, this guy must be able to understand that something that contains the four elements and feeds on solid food couldn't be the same thing as perception couldn't possibly be. So there, he, now he says that if that, if that is the self, because Potapada postulates that this four element thing with feeding on with solid food is self, then obviously perception is something else. It's not included in that. Now, of course, he, he figures, okay, so Potapada gives in on that one, but he has a new idea. He comes up with something else now. He says, Lord, I postulate a mind-made self, complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. Now, now we're getting nearer to the problem, aren't we? Because the, the body, made up of four elements and having all these funny bits and pieces inside that we've looked at, well, nobody really wants to believe that that's self. But now we come to the mind-made one, and that has all the sense organs. So he says, well, that must be it. Now, the Buddha says exactly the same thing again. <clears throat> but with such a mind-made self, perception would be one thing and the self another. You can see that in this way. Given such a mind-made self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others pass away. In this way, you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. This mind-made self that the Potapada is talking about <coughs> is con concerned with apparently what he's talking about is the sense contact because he makes a special point of having all the sense organs so now that he has all the sense organs and he says well this is a mind made self so this is a self I've made up for myself Buddha says well but doesn't include perception does it if you've made up a self in your mind So then, Puddha doesn't give up yet because he would like to keep the self. And I think he's a very familiar person for us then, isn't he? Because uh, most people would like to keep the self intact and get the meditation on top of the self. Lord, I assume a formless self made up of perception. 
so now he's trying to make it really difficult for the Buddha. He says, well, now there must be a formless self. If all this doesn't work, then there must be a formless one. So that means without a body, huh? Formless is without a body, a self without a body. And this self that he's thinking of is made up of perception. So this formless self is made up of these, of all states of consciousness. So now the Buddha says exactly the same thing again. But with such a formless self, perception would be one thing and self another. You can see that in this way. Given such a formless self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others pass away. In this way you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. What he's saying to him again and again, because obviously it doesn't make any impact on Potapada, he hasn't given up having a self, he says, now, all right, you're postulating that there is a self. And now you've come to the point of having it without a body. But the perceptions that you say are in this self, or he says made up of perceptions, but it's made up of, they come and they go. So how can the self which you've postulated here and the perception which are coming and going, how can they be the same thing. So here he's now he's, uh, this also is important to know, he's referring to the impermanence of the states of consciousness. That they are coming and going, they arise and they pass away. And he says that um, it would arise in a person and others would pass away. So how can the self that you're postulating and the perception that come and go be the same thing? Now, He's not happy at all, this Potapada. He says, but Lord, is it possible for me to know whether perception is a person's self or whether perception is one thing and self another? Potapada, it is difficult for one of different views, a different faith, under different influences, with different pursuits and a different training to know whether these are two different things or not. And that's quite an interesting statement and uh, I've never seen that in any other discourse of the Buddha. Because he makes it always very clear uh, that everybody is welcome to his teaching. And he, of course, Potapada is welcome too because he keeps answering him a page after page. But he says, now you have had a different influence. You've obviously learned different things. And you belong to it, you have a different faith, faith and a different teacher. And you have totally different views and have had different training. So it's very difficult to know whether these are two things or not, whether the self and perception are two things. So, because he hasn't listened actually to the Buddha's teaching. Well, Lord, if this question of self and perception is difficult for one like me, then tell me something else. So he's given up. Never mind about this self-business. He wants to know something else. Now he comes with some dillies. Um, the first thing he wants to know, is the world eternal? Is only this true and the opposite false? Pada, I have not declared that the world is eternal and that the opposite view is false. Well, Lord, is the world not eternal? I have not declared that the world is not eternal. 
Well, Lord, is the world infinite or not infinite? I have not declared that the world is not infinite and that the opposite view is false. So in other words, the Buddha does not um, wish to answer him whether it's eternal, whether it's infinite, and whether the opposite is true or false. He just doesn't go into that. And now comes a very important question, and he gets the same uh, answer. Well, Lord, is the soul the same as the body? Is the soul one thing and the body another? I have not declared that the soul is one thing and the body another. Well, Lord, does the Tathagata, that's the Buddha, huh, exist after death? Is only this true and all else false? I have not declared that the Tathagata exists after death. Does he not exist after death? Both exist and not exist. Neither exists nor not exist. I have not declared that the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death and that all else is false. Now, this is a very typical Indian dialogue. <laughs> and they are usually, they go like this. They say, do you exist? Does a Buddha exist after death? Does he not exist? Does he both exist and not exist? And does he neither exist or not exist? This is a, a traditional way of asking questions. And the traditional answer to that is, I have not declared either this or that. And the reason for that traditional answer is that the Buddha says, and he does say this later, that <coughs> whether one knows this or not has absolutely no influence on one's reaching Nibbana. These are strictly theoretical uh, questions which help one to have a viewpoint. And in order to become enlightened, one has to let go of one's viewpoint. So that's why he doesn't answer such questions so that one doesn't have another new viewpoint, which is either the Buddha always exists after death or it doesn't, some viewpoint. And that is also why he doesn't answer about the world being eternal or infinite or not, because again, that's just viewpoint, and it doesn't have any bearing on one's practice towards Nibbana. So he goes into that later. But there is a nice story, which uh, I will tell at this time. There was another wanderer, not this Potapada, uh, but also from a different sect, and his name was Vachagota. And he's very often mentioned, this Vachagota. And he came to the Buddha with exactly these questions. Does the Tathagata exist after death? Does he not exist? Does he both exist and not exist? Or does he neither exist nor not exist? And the Buddha said to him, Vachagata, bring some sticks. And Vachagata went into the forest and brought some sticks and branches. He says, okay, make a fire. So he made a fire. And then the Buddha said, now throw some more sticks on the fire. So he threw some more sticks. And then he said to him, how is the fire going? Oh, it's going very well. And he said, all right, stop throwing sticks on. So he stopped throwing sticks on. And after a while, of course, fire died down. And then he said to Vachagata, what did the fire do? Oh, it's uh, completely gone now. Buddha said, oh, is it gone, really? Did it go forward, backward, to the right, the left, up or down? 
I said, well, I said, no, it didn't need to do either of those things. It just completely uh, stopped, finished. But I said, that's right. That's the way it is. And uh, then also the explanation that is given, not in that same story, but at another time, is that the sticks and the branches we throw on the fire is that the fire of our passions. And the sticks and branches are the things that our passions would like to get. So we throw them into the fire. And then when we stop doing that, the fire of our passion goes out. And Nibbana, literally translated, means non-burning. No fire. No fire, no passion. And people who hear that for the first time or even second or third time think, ooh, how dull. But it's actually the exact opposite of being dull. It's uh, peaceful. Because the, the passions are, of course, exactly that which bring all the excitement and the unpleasantnesses into the mind. So this was one of the ways he explained this business about um, after death. And the world, being eternal or infinite, um, and the beginning of it, this is also another question. How did this universe begin and why are we ignorant? Why did the whole thing start? Now, this is one, what are called, one of the four imponderables. He wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer that. Again, for the simple reason that it doesn't conduce to practice. And the um, one is the beginning of the world or its uh, eternal uh, existence, infinite uh, existence. And one is the intricacies of karma. How it all works. How what we brought with us and how we brought it and why we brought it and who we were last time and what we're going to be. People have a fantastic fascination for this type of thing. But it doesn't help to practice. On the contrary, it brings more viewpoints. And then the range of a person in jhana the, um, uh, the the power of a person in jhana and also the range of a Buddha. These are the uh, four things he wouldn't answer because he said none of all viewpoints has nothing to do with practice, which is actually uh, in a very um, it's rather rare in a in a spiritual teaching of such dimension of so many uh, discourses that we find the Buddha again and again pushing the questioner and the people back to doing it, not just discussing it, and not having an ideas on how it should be, but finding out oneself. So now he has, now Puttaparas, of course, stymied, now he comes up with this. But Lord, why has the Lord not declared these things? He says, why don't you tell me, you know. Puttapada, that is not conducive to the purpose, not conducive to Dhamma, not the way to embark on the spiritual life. It does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calm, higher knowledge, enlightenment to Nibbana. This is why I have not declared it, what I've just said. Um, now here we have again... And this is not uninteresting. A part of depend arising. And this time we have part of 
transcendental dependent arising. Now, I have already told you about the um, worldly dependent arising, and it went backward from, if you remember, from death back to ignorance all the way. On right view, anybody remember? Yes? Okay, good. (laughs) That's good. So now this is transcendental dependent arising. And transcendental dependent arising actually starts with dukkha, which is a a most interesting aspect because worldly dependent arising ends with dukkha, usually aging and death, and this is how all the dukkha uh, arises. Now that starts with dukkha. And the starting of dukkha, and I'll just say it very briefly, is the real understanding of dukkha through which then faith and confidence in a spiritual teaching arises which brings joy to the heart. And as joy comes to the heart, then the uh, jhanas are described and after the jhanas come knowledge and vision of things how they really are. And the next step after that is disenchantment. Now, disenchantment is the first super-mundane step. And that's, this starts here with that. The other steps have been left out here. The Buddha very often uses dependent arising any which way. He uses half of it or a quarter of it, backwards, sideways, any which way, just to show one follows the other. Now, here we start with disenchantment. Disenchantment has one meaning only that is having seen that the world with its sense contact that it provides will never satisfy. It will never bring that deep down satisfaction that we are looking for. And because of that, because we have seen knowledge and vision of things as they really are, because of that, we become disenchanted with worldly life doesn't necessarily mean to become monk or nun, but it means that we do not run after sense contacts in such a determined fashion anymore as we did in the past. We have seen that there's something more important to do with our lives. And the disenchantment goes as far as having sense contacts and no longer really finding them interesting. They're just happening. They don't have that kind of um, excitement to them anymore that they used to have. Now, sometimes, of course, one might think that happens because one's got older. But uh, it isn't really so. It is due to the understanding that the um, the sense contact is too fleeting to bring any satisfaction. So disenchantment changes one's approach to one's um, daily living. It doesn't need to necessarily change the whole outer manifestation of it. It often does. But it changes one's approach to it. One has different priorities. And the next one after that is this passion. Now in Pali that's called viraga. Raga is the English rage or raging. And vi is the negative 
uh, syllable, like non-raging, dispassion. Well, non-raging doesn't sound very good. So dispassion is the proper English translation. But the literal translation is non-raging. So the, that is the inner, inner excitement is gone. Because one is disenchanted, one has seen the world in a different way. One has seen it as a constant temptation for the sense contact and the mind uh, describing them, when one has also seen it in that way which I have already mentioned. Remember the skinned cow on which bare flesh the insects land as a constant irritation. There's always something. Now, that constant irritation, I've mentioned this before, I mention it again, is very easily noticed when you've been in a retreat such as this for two, three, or four weeks and then go out shopping. Constant irritation. All the senses are engaged. And then one may get an idea that the way it really is, that it is, that the world is an irritation for the senses, and the enchantment which one had with faraway places and uh, um, beautiful sights and uh, lovely sounds and good tastes and uh, nice uh, touch contact, all that enchantment one has had with that may be so much um, eliminated already that this inner passionate feeling does not arise anymore and instead there is equanimity so dispassion is the as a result of disenchantment is already a very um, advanced state of the whole practice because it leads it's a springboard for Nibbana dispassion is a springboard for Nibbana and Sometimes the Buddha has said, Nibbana is non-clinging. So when there's no passion, it's impossible to cling to anything. On the contrary. So that is the next one. And now we have... Here now comes the next thing. To calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So... With that dispassion, the inner calm arises, which is the um, not only the equanimity. <laughs> which is not only the equanimity, but also which has um, the uh, the hi- the higher states of consciousness with them, and higher knowledge. It's a specific term which is something that arises out of calm and insight and they are um, super mundane powers. Clairvoyance, clairaudience, um, mind reading, knowing the uh, karma of people, how they arise and, and cease again and also the um, elimination of all the taints so that the next step is enlightenment. But the higher knowledge is something that does not 
is not a dependent um, that enlightenment is not dependent upon clairvoyance and clairaudience. They are side products and only arise to jhana meditators and only then if they put their mind on it. If they put their mind on it and want to do that, then that sort of thing arises. If they don't, it doesn't necessarily do. And enlightenment is then the next step. And enlightenment and Nibbana, he's got two, he's separating it, but it's not a separation, it's the same thing. Enlightenment and Nibbana is the same thing. So because all these things that Potapada is asking about um, do not conduce to gaining this state, he hasn't declared them. Now, Potapada is of course not satisfied at all. And he says, but Lord, what has the Lord declared? If you haven't declared this nor that, or what have you declared? Something, you know. After all, you're a teacher. Potapada, I have declared this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. In other words, the Four Noble Truths. So he brings him back to the essence where he needs to practice. But Lord, why has the Lord declared this? Now this uh, fellow sounds just like us, doesn't he? Um, because, Potapada, this is conducive to the purpose, conducive to Dhamma, the way to embark on the spiritual life. It leads to disenchantment, to dispassion, to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. That is why I've declared it. So now, very strangely, Potapada is satisfied. So it is, Lord, so it is. And now is the time for the blessed Lord to do as he sees fit. And then the Lord rose from his feet and went away. So all of a sudden he gives in and says, well, everything's fine, so all right. Now, you should hear what he gets from his friends. Then the wanderer, as soon as the Lord had left, reproached sneered and jeered at Potapada from all sides, saying, whatever that ascetic Gautama says, Potapada agrees with him. So it is, Lord, so it is. We don't understand a word of the ascetic Gautama's whole discourse. Is the word eternal or not? Is it finite or infinite? Is the soul the same as the body or different? Does it the target exist after death or not, or both or neither? So they're angry at him because he's their leader, you know. And now he says, okay, to the Buddha. And the Buddha walks away and these fellows haven't understand anything. You don't know what it's all about. And then Pudapada says, I don't understand either about whether the world's eternal or not. <laughs> or whether the Tathagata exists after death or not. Or both or neither. But the ascetic Gautama teaches a true and real way of practice which is consonant with Dhamma and grounded in Dhamma. Dhamma, law of nature, or law, law of truth. And why should not a man like me express approval of such a true and real practice so well taught by the ascetic Gautama? Now, that's an interesting statement. It is quite unique. There are not so many um, suttas that have that in it. I mean, Puttapada quite truthfully says, well, I don't know either whether the world's eternal or infinite or finite or whatever it is. And um, the Buddha didn't tell him, so he doesn't know. And 
He doesn't know whether the Buddha is going to exist after death or not. But, he says, he's telling us about a practice. And if it's a, it's a true and real way, and it is consonant with Dhamma, with, the, with um, the law, and so a man like me is expressing his approval of that. Why shouldn't I do that? Because he's quite well acquainted with what the Buddha is saying when he's saying that he's teaching suffering, origin of suffering, cessation of suffering, and path leading to the cessation. He knows that he must have heard it before the Four Noble Truths. Because if we hadn't heard the Four Noble Truths before, we wouldn't even know what this is all about, would we? But now we already know that the Buddha teaches that there is dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness in the world, and that it comes about through our craving, our wanting, and that there is Nibbana, there is the cessation of that, and then there's a Noble Eightfold Path. And we have talked about some parts of the Noble Eightfold Path. We've had right view and we've had right effort. We certainly have had right mindfulness. We've also had right concentration. We haven't had right intention yet and we haven't had the um, um, moral conduct uh, path yet, but we'll get to that. Never fear when it comes. So now he's sort of... Um, finished with all these people that are jeering at him and told them that he's expressing approval. So then, two or three days later, Chitta, the son of the elephant trainer, went with Potapada to see the Lord. Chitta prostrated himself before the Lord and sat down to one side. Potapada exchanged courtesies with the Lord, sat down to one side and told, told him what had happened. So now Potapada tells the Buddha that these other wanderers all uh, yeered at him and sneered at him and reproached him and said why he's approving of these words where nobody understands what's going on. So he's telling him this story. So the Buddha says, Potapada, all those wanderers are blind and sightless. You alone among them are sightless. Some things I have taught and pointed out as being certain. Others as being uncertain. Which are the things I've pointed out as uncertain? The world eternal, that's uncertain. The Tathagata exists after death, that's also uncertain. Because then, and why have I not taught them? Because they're not conducive to, and then he repeats, they're not conducive to disenchantment, dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. That is why I've declared them as uncertain. They, are, they don't help us to practice, and also there's no way that we can prove them to be correct at this time. But what things have I pointed out as certain? This is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Why? Because they're conducive to the purpose, conducive to Dhamma, the way to embark on the spiritual life, lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calm, higher knowledge, enlightenment to Nibbana. That is why I've declared them as certain. I don't think that the Buddha repeated himself as often as it is repeated in the suttas, but they were recited. They were not written down for at least 250 years after the Buddha's Paranibbana. They were recited. And it is much easier to recite something if you can repeat it. It, uh, it sticks in your mind much better. 
now he goes on, the Buddha goes on to tell Puttapada. Puttapada, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death, the self is entirely happy and free from disease. That's interesting, isn't it? I approached them and asked if this was indeed what they declared and believed, and they replied, yes. And then I said, do you friends living in the world know and see it as an entirely happy place? And they replied, no. So I said, have you ever experienced a single night or day or half a night or day that was entirely happy? And they replied, no. So I said, do you know a path or a practice whereby an entirely happy world might be brought about? And they replied, no. I said, have you heard the voices of deities who have been reborn in an entirely happy world saying, the attainment of an entirely happy world has been well and rightly gained, and we gentlemen have been reborn in such a realm. And they replied, no. So what do you think, Puttapada? Such being the case, does not the talk of those ascetics and Brahmins turn out to be stupid? So the Buddha is quite um, adamant in saying that the teaching, which does not have dukkha in it, is stupid. He, doesn't, he does not try to be polite. He does not try to uh, minimize it. He says that it's, not co- that, is, that it's not only that it's incorrect, it doesn't have any sense to it. And what he's saying is that since we haven't got any complete happiness here in this world and we haven't really been told by anybody that they have found a totally happy place after death, nobody has come and said that they have found that, we haven't heard the voices, huh? Have you heard the voices of deities? So, and since they haven't told us that, and that they've been reborn there, so why, why, how can it be that these ascetics and Brahmins can say that, that after death, the self is entirely happy and free from disease? It's a totally different approach now that he's taking, and sometimes one could think, and uh, often it's uh, said, that he probably didn't say all this in one sitting. He probably put a part came back another time and started asking him other questions. Because <clears throat> the first thing seems to be finished now. Because he seems to be finished by saying, well, all these questions that you've asked me, they don't help you to practice, so now practice a noble eightfold path and you'll be right. So then he comes back another time. And now he gives a, a, a simile how, why this kind of um, approach to a happy self is stupid. It is just as if a man were to say, I'm going to seek out and love the most beautiful girl in the country. They might say to him, well, as to this most beautiful girl in the country, do you know whether she belongs to the Katya the Brahmins, the merchants, or the artisan class? And he would say no. Then they might say, well, do you know her name, her clan, whether she's tall or short or medium, dark or light complexion, or what village or town or city she comes from? And he would say no. And they might say, well then, you don't know or see the one you seek for in desire, and he would say no. Does not the talk of that man turn out to be stupid? Certainly, Lord. <laughs> 
and so it is with those ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death the self is entirely happy and free from disease. I give another simile. It is just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace at a crossroads. People might say to him, well now, this staircase for a palace that you're building, do you know whether the palace will face east, west, north, south, whether it be high, low, or medium height? And he would say no. And they might say, well then, you don't know or see what kind of a palace you're building the staircase for. And he would say no. Don't you think that that man's talk would turn out to be stupid? Certainly, Lord. Oh. So then again, he, he compares that to the ascetics and Brahmins. Now, it goes on about the self. Puttapada, there are three kinds of acquired self. The gross acquired self, the mind-made acquired self, the formless acquired self. What is the gross acquired self? It has form. It's composed of the four great elements, nourished by material food. What's the mind-made self? It has form, complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. What is the formless acquired self? It is without form and made up of perception. I just say it's made up of perception. Now, the word acquired as a translation is quite a good one because what it means is that we are acquiring ourselves. We don't have it. We acquire it by our own ideas. And so the first one is this bodily self, which one identifies with first, that goes away then. And then the next thing that one identifies is, is the mind, the mind-made self, that we identify with that. Even still having the body, it still has form, but we identify with mind, mind is me. And the third one then we have, we say, well, no, body is just body. It's really not me at all. It hasn't got anything to do with me, so it's formless. But it still has an acquired self, so then we think it's our perception that is the self. And the perception is that what we are aware of, our awareness in this state. In this. And uh, so I think one can sympathize with them because this is the most common way of looking at self. Now, the Buddha says, but I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong, and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. Now, Patapada, you might think, Perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear and one might still be unhappy. That is not how it should be regarded. If defiling states disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develops, tranquility, mindfulness and clear awareness, and that is a happy state. Now, he's telling Buddha here that he's teaching how to get rid of this gross acquired self and the defiling mental states are to disappear, in other words, the purification system, through, and he gives the, the means, how? Tranquility, calm, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. So, it isn't yet 
a, uh, uh, the com- an insight stage. But he's, what he's saying is that the purity of the mental state then brings happiness. So the purity of the mental state comes about through the tranquility meditation, through mindfulness and clear comprehension. These are the three aspects which he is now mentioning here. Of course, later on he will uh, mention more. And this is only in order to get rid of the idea that the body is me. That is the gross acquired self. The gross acquired self, this is that's the idea that this is the body is me. And because of the tranquility, mindfulness and clear comprehension, the unwholesome mental state disappears. Now the tranquility meditation I have described and explained in many different ways how it purifies automatically and I've also already described and explained how mindfulness and clear comprehension purifies automatically. But this is just that he now repeats it from a different angle again that the happiness which we can acquire within us is dependent upon our purity, apart on our mental states which are wholesome and dependent on that and how we can get there is through these three pathways. Now, obviously, we also have to get rid of the other acquired cells, but that's another few pages of that, to get rid of the other acquired cells. I think this should be enough for one evening that we get rid of the uh, gross acquired cells, first of all, and then we'll get on with the next one. So maybe you have some questions about any of this. at least have as many questions as Potapada had. (laughs) Yes? Um, You started with when you have a deeply experienced non-consciousness moment. Is that always so? Like if you have the experience and the knowledge all around? Uh, No. It's not necessarily like that. The, you can have an experience and having been untrained, as the Buddha calls it, no knowledge arises. Now, I compare this like this. You have a two-year-old, puts his hand on a hot stove, screams with pain, runs away, hasn't got a clue that the pain came from the hot stove, isn't told about it, and does it again, and has again the same pain. He had the experience, but he didn't understand it. He didn't get the training, he didn't get the information. So this is what the Buddha does. He gives us the information and the training. He leads us along the way and says, this is what happens. Now, you do it, and if you get the experience, this is what it means. So if we have that information and that um that that training, then we will understand the experience. So if you've got the experience that you didn't have the information, then you wouldn't have the knowledge? Um, well, it's 
possible that one is a bit of a spiritual genius and might understand it. There are such people in the world, but very few. Very few. Ramana Maharshi was one. He had a death experience at the age of 16 and uh, became fully enlightened from it. But that's very rare. Yes, yes. Particularly the importance of the Buddha's teaching, yes. So that we can see what it means. It's, it's very rare to be able to figure it out oneself. There are some people, but not many. Anything else? I find it quite interesting that Potapada, who lived apparently two and a half thousand years ago, is asking lots of questions that are being asked today too. I heard, I mean, a different way of wording them, of course, but I've heard all these questions. Does the Buddha, is the Buddha still alive? And if, if not, why not? And uh, is the world, uh, uh, is the world going to be here always? And, all these questions that are bothering Potapada, they are bothering people always. And the Buddha always puts one back to practice, which is really um, a very skillful way of teaching, because obviously he's not making him angry by that. You know, you could get somebody angry at you because you're not answering their questions. So it's very skillful. Always gives also long explanations. And also that Potapada is trying to postulate the self, which is the, the most common difficulty that one experiences in the teaching. The question which is very often asked is, well, if I don't really exist, what am I trying so hard for? Why should I get all these knee pains, back pains, get up early in the morning? What for? I don't even exist, so what's all this about? So this is a very common question, and Potapada has exactly the same thing in mind, you know. So it's very, very, uh, I think it's quite consoling to know that uh, we're nothing special, there's always been going on like that. Yes. No, they weren't waiting for one, and they didn't—they didn't know one was coming. Not at least it doesn't uh, appear like that in the suttas at all. What appears is that um, he realized he was the Buddha, and one of the mudras, one of the hand movements, is the touching with the left hand, the earth. He's calling the earth as witness that he was enlightened, because there was no person that could witness that. That was at his enlightenment. And then he went to teach the five uh, companions that had been with him at the meditation teacher and uh, said to them, I am the Buddha. I am fully enlightened. And they, and they said to him, 
well, how do we know, you know? I mean, you look just like you always did. You know, what's different? And, he, and then he said to them, well, have I ever, in the six years that you have known me, have I ever deceived you? And they said, no. He said, all right, then give me a hearing. And they did. And then when he finished with the first discourse, the Dhamma Chakra Pavana Sutta, the uh, turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, uh, one of them became enlightened. Kondanyu sees, Kondanyu knows. Kondanyu was one of the five. And then they accepted him as an enlightened one. But he said, I am the Buddha. So they knew all the Buddha then? They knew that I didn't. Uh, it's a, no, no. Buddha means enlightened one. Oh yes, yes, certainly. They were they were all striving for that. Yes, certainly. These were five uh, religious practitioners. Jesus said this. Five companions he had. Uh, they were striving for that. And so is this Potapada and his wanderers. They are religious wanderers. They are religious people. And so they are on a spiritual path, but uh, not on the Buddha's. Very in Indian, in India, much more common than it is in the West. Quite a lot of that. Um, yes. Does an arahant know what the Buddha is? Yes, the Buddha is an arahant. But do they know as much as Buddha is? Uh, yes. The only difference between arahant and Buddha in this tradition, and that has to be said because the Mahayana tradition has some different explanations. And the only difference in this tradi- uh, tradition is that the Buddha has to find the way for himself, whereas the other hand can follow the Buddha's path. For a Buddha, and in this tradition, that Buddha was the seventh Buddha. I think the Mahayanists have 24 already. So there are only seven here. Um, <coughs> each one finds exactly the Four Noble Truths in the Noble Eightfold Path again, but by himself, whereas the Arahant uses it and becomes enlightened. So the Buddha is also called an Arahant. Nama Tassa Bhagavato Arahato, Arahat, which is worship of the Buddha, Bhagava and Arahant. But they have to find, they can use this teaching. And we are very fortunate that the teaching is still alive so we can use it and become armed. What is the rank of disciples again? Or, um, a Buddha appears every so many thousand years or every so many years and then the teachings die out? No, no, not like that. <coughs> this, uh, there is a prophecy that uh, is made um, Sorry, I can't now see whether it's in the commentary or whether it's actually in the suttas. I think it's in the commentary. That the uh, this teaching of this Buddha will last 5,000 years. And at the end of the 5,000 years, the words Anicca Dukkha will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises. But that is eons away. And that's why one should practice now. Because who knows whether we're going to meet it exactly when the next one comes around. He will, but... No. No. Can be eons. 
The next one is going to be called Maitreya Buddha, which means loving kindness Buddha. Well, this one is called uh, Gotama. That was just his name. That's just his name. But uh, it, it can be eons. So it's best to do it now. Not to, you know, procrastinate. And imagine eons, what all the, the horrible dukkha we would be having between then and so this Maitreya Buddha comes around. Not, doesn't bear thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not even discuss it. <laughs> yes. So as long as we like focus on it, or focus on that Yes. Certainly. No, only the non-returner goes to a different, uh, different plane, different realm. The Sotrapana, uh, the spleen enterer, and the once returner, they come back here and finish here. Well, one would hope so. The once returner, definitely. The Sotrapana, the spleen enterer, one doesn't know. He can, you know, sort of dilly-dally around and get to as far as non-returner, and then he has to go up into the Brahma realms and do it there states of consciousness. Best thing to do is do it right here and now. Can't find a better place or a better situation. It's all there. Just doing it. I mean, we'll, we'll see whether Puttapada eventually agrees that there's no self. He hasn't agreed yet about there's no self. He's, he's only agreeing that one should practice. That he has agreed to. You can't comprehend it from the inside out. You're not an insider. But you can certainly comprehend it from the outside in. It's like, like a tennis game. You only know the threat and the difficulty of hitting the ball so that the opponent can't get it if you're actually on the court doing it. But if you know what tennis is all about and you're a, 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 a bystander, and you are an observer and looking at it, you know exactly what's happening. And you know how to do it, but you, how they're doing it. But you haven't actually done it yourself. So you can understand the tennis game. You know why they're counting like this and which fellow is doing it well and what's happening. But you can't feel it. Only the one who's running around the court is going to feel it. So you can be an outsider understanding what's going on, but you can't feel it from the inside. So it's a big difference. And it's actually, yeah, well, the the stream enterer really knows, but doesn't always feel. The once returner feels more often and knows more, better. The non-returner feels it practically, well, a lot of the time, one would say maybe, a lot of the time. But only the Arahant feels it all the time. Because then there's nothing else that he can. 
possibly be. So you can understand it, but you can't feel it. Eh? But that's all right. I have to start somewhere now. Yes. You, you just described the four stages of enlightenment. Yes. Um. Start with stream interest. That's just the name for it. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Go inside of yourself and find the feeling of peace. Try to pinpoint that feeling. comes from contentment, not wanting. If you see and recognize any wanting, any desire, no matter how small, let it go that you can contact the inner feeling of peace which is always there but often covered get as near to it as you can and then become one with it so that there is nothing else except peace from head to toe all around you all within you
And now let the boundaries of the body dissolve. So that the contours become indistinct and then merge with the air around you. Having done that, let the peace which you are and feel Enlarge and expand. There's nothing to limit it. Let it flow out of you in all directions. touching every heart every being in its way And now notice that giving this to others, letting it flow, is also imbued with love. How the two go together, the peace that you feel and are, and the giving, which is love. Let it flow further from the room outside to nature. To trees, flowers, animals, making an ever larger area of peace. it flow further to houses and people further away 
let nothing limit the flow of the peace that comes from your inner being is given with love. Let it reach as far as the sky, the stars and the moon. Let it all be in contact and a feeling of peace. Which can then encompass the whole of this globe and all the beings on it. Let it flow even further out into the universe without limitation, no boundaries, all-encompassing. Just being peace. Let your own peacefulness merge into the peacefulness of the whole of the universe. Let there be no separation. Now let it slowly come back 
to this globe and the beings on it, the sky all around it. back to the people and animals and nature in this country. Imbue them with your love and your peace. Bring it closer all around you. Bring it back to this room. Fill it with your peace and your love. And to yourself. Know that that's what you want to be and that's what you are. peace and love. Let everything else that could be within you disappear. Only peace. That point of contentment where there are no wishes.
May there be love and peace everywhere.